would like us to turn for our scripture reading this morning to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians 5, and I'd like to read for you verses 1 to 16. Hear this as the word of God. Paul says, Be ye therefore imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, even as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for an odor of a sweet smell. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as becometh saints, nor filthiness, nor foolish talking or jesting, which are not befitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know of a surety, that no fornicator, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no man deceive you with empty words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were once darkness, but are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is well-pleasing unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For the things which are done by them in secret, it is a shame even to speak of. But all things, when they are reproved, are made manifest by the light. For everything that is made manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepeth, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall shine upon thee. Therefore, look carefully how ye walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And thus far the reading of God's Word. I realize that uh, just yesterday our thoughts were focused upon the incarnation and upon the merriment and celebration that we call Christmas in our culture. Um, and this is just the day after Christmas, but it's also the Lord's Day preceding the end of the year. And uh, therefore is the appropriate time, I think, to preach my New Year's sermon. Um, although the condition of my health would maybe lead me to call it a New Year's meditation instead. In Ephesians 5, Paul, after giving lengthy exhortations about the Christian life and what is uh, becoming and what is not becoming in the Christian life, comes to verse 15 and says, Therefore, watch carefully how you walk. Now, Paul's not at all interested in jaywalking and uh, people who are pigeon-toed and other sorts of things. They're watching carefully how you walk has to do with the conduct of your life, the manner of your life, if you will, your lifestyle, as we might call it. He says, be careful about your lifestyle. Be careful about that pattern of conduct that is seen in you. That you show that you walk as a wise person and not as an unwise person. What is characteristic of the unwise? To put it bluntly, what do we know about fools? How do fools walk? How do they conduct their lives? Well, I think in a word, fools fail to reflect on the consequences of what they say and what they do. Fools are short-sighted. They don't look at the long-range consequences. They don't know what's at stake when they make decisions, and therefore they make foolish shallow, futile decisions, foolish ones. 
Paul says, be very careful that your lifestyle is not characterized by that kind of shallowness and futility. Don't walk unwisely. Walk as a wise person walks. How does a wise person walk? The next verse tells us, of course, it's very appropriate. At this time of year, as we think about the year ending, he says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time actually could be translated literally buying up the opportunity. Uh, the word for time, one of the Greek words for time is used there. Um, however, it's not simple um, eventuation, the passing of time that is referred to. The kind of time that Paul refers to is the appropriate time, the appointed time, uh, the right time, what we might call the opportune time. Uh, in the fullness of time, that's the same word when Paul uses it, in the fullness of time, Christ was born of a woman. That is at God's opportune time, at, the, at just the right time, the appropriate time. So here Paul says, redeem, buy back the opportunities, the opportune times. If you're going to walk wisely, you're going to be a person who is not foolish and failing to reflect on the time, the nature of the time, and the opportunities the time gives you. But you're rather going to buy them up. Uh, John Calvin, in his sermons on Ephesians, tells us that um, Paul makes it very clear here that we are not to use the evil nature of our age as a cloak for the slothfulness of our lives. So easy to do. I'd like to read for you what Calvin says. It, it strikes me as so fitting. I know that I end up doing this so often in my own life, making these kind of excuses. Calvin says, but now we see well enough the evil of the days, that is to say that all is against us, and although we were the most alert in the world, yet we shall not fail to be caught napping with many things and to find ourselves hindered when it is a question of serving God. Nevertheless, all this passes by and slips away, and we do not care about it at all. Therefore, let us consider and learn to redeem the time, that is to say, the more occasions there are to provoke us to wickedness and to pull us away from God, the more let each one of us strive and strain to do good. For we are accustomed to use the corruptness of the time as a cloak to cover our sloth and the use, excuse me, sloth and lethargy, and so we imagine always that it is lawful for us to do as others do, as the proverb says. If a man tells us that we must live in equity and uprightness, how shall I do it? Every man will say, A man cannot buy a penny worth of apples without some deceit, and how then may I deal in wares and merchandise? Again, if a man tells us that we must live soberly and temperately, yes, we say, but who does it? If a man speaks to us of patience and meekness and other such things, is it not apparent, we say, that every man behaves himself completely to the contrary? Shall I be all alone in the world? Take note how we set about making this our shield against God and a means of repelling all the warnings given us as if vices, because they are common, ought to serve us as an acquittal of discharge. But on the contrary, it is said here that we must take so much the more pains to redeem the time. And the more the devil labors to hinder us and the more means and wiles he has with which to do it, the more must each one of us employ himself virtuously and stir up all his mind and understanding, praying God to strengthen us and to give power to resist him. And then I skip down 
to the bottom of the page where he says, you see then the thing we have to note from this passage? In view of the corruption which is nowadays throughout the world and the great number of outrageous vices and the fact that all things are quite out of order and to be short, that even the most perfect men are somewhat infected with the vices and disorders that are everywhere, instead of seeking empty excuses by pleading that we are weak and unable to overcome the great number of hindrances that present themselves to us, let us redeem the time. So stirring words. I think Calvin is really on to something here when he says most people look at the evil age as an opportunity to um, avoid doing what is right. They say, shall I be all alone in the world? I'll be the only one who observes principle. I'll be the only one who tells the truth. I'll be the only one who, who follows uh, integrity in my business dealings. And Calvin says, but Paul says, if you look at the evil nature of your age, all the more must you buy up the opportunity for serving God. The Puritans were set on doing that very thing. And I happen to be a fan of the Puritans. I don't hide that fact. I think the Puritans were a high watermark in the history of the church. I don't believe that they were perfect. I don't believe that I could approve of everything they said and did by any means. But uh, out of all the groups that I disagree with, I disagree least with them, I guess. The Puritans had a, a habit which I don't necessarily recommend that we all take up today, but at least the thought behind that habit is one which I wish we'd all cultivate. The Puritans kept spiritual diaries, at least a good number of the Puritans did. And so much so that we know from history that some of them kept elaborate records of every penny they spent in a year's time. Uh, and so that at the end of the year, they'd go back and make a reckoning as to how much money was given to the Lord, how much money was spent on entertainment, how much money was spent on clothing, um, and other uh, things, so that they could see what their priorities really were. They knew that where their pocketbook was was where their heart was. And so when they looked at the spending of their money, they said, well, obviously in this year, my priorities were not the following, but were these. They were very meticulous in keeping records of things like that. And day by day, or at least week by week, they'd keep a record of their spiritual progress too. Because they knew they had to redeem the time. They had to buy up the opportunity and not walk as fools. But you see, a fool never knows how many mistakes he's made. And for that reason, we never know how many more he's going to make. But a wise person stops and he reflects on these things. And he looks at what has taken place. And he adjusts his behavior. He's something like a cybernetic system. You know, that's a self-correcting system. Uh, a wise man sees what's gone on in the past and he takes the necessary steps to correct that. Then in the next year or the next week or whatever the period of accounting may be, he takes further steps to correct the excesses in that correction and constantly his life is one of reform. Matthew Henry spoke in the style of the Puritans, um, himself being a second generation Puritan, when he uh, wrote about this very passage. It is a metaphor taken from merchants and traders who diligently observe and improve the seasons for merchandise and trade. It is a great part of, a Christian, of Christian wisdom to redeem the time. Good Christians must be good husbands of their time and take care to improve it to the best of purposes by watching against temptations, by doing good while it is in the power of their hands, and by filling it up with proper employment. They should make the best use they can of the present seasons of grace. Our time is a talent given us by God for some good end, 
and it is misfit and lost when it is not employed according to his design. If we have lost our time heretofore, we must endeavor to redeem it by doubling our diligence in doing our duty for the future. And so in a word, Ephesians 5 tells us, buy up the opportunity. You live in an evil age. Understand the nature of the day in which you live and then make the best use of your time for serving God. That understanding the nature of your um, day reminds me of 1 Chronicles 12.32, which I suppose, apart from it being the theme verse for the Divinity School in Tyler, Texas, would not be on my mind, but I've seen their motto enough times, and it is a striking one. We learn there in 1 Chronicles 12.32, in the taking uh, the chronicle of Israel, of the children of Issachar, the sons of Issachar. And it says that they were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And totally apart from now, whether you think the people in Tyler do or do not understand the times and all that, the Bible does commend that, that people look at the nature of the day in which they live and they understand the nature of their day and culture so that they know what God's people ought to do. Paul says, understand we live in an evil age and what you ought to do. In fact, Ephesians 5, verse 12 would tell us that we should be checking our own spiritual progress from time to time. Ephesians 5, verse 12 says, For when by reason of the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need again that someone teach you the rudiments of the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of solid food. It's an interesting expression. When by reason of the time you ought to be teachers. At this point in your Christian development, God would expect you to have attained the following. But instead, you've gone backwards. You've retrogressed. Ephesians, excuse me, Hebrews here then would call us to check our spiritual progress. Are we on schedule? in our expected Christian maturation. Individuals should be looking at the nature of their lives. We should not be foolish, totally overlooking past errors and future improvement. We should look at our lives and assess them properly. Churches should do the same thing. Revelation chapter 2, of course, Revelation 2 and 3 all together prove that point. Uh, the letters to the seven churches are all assessments. Jesus says, here's what your past history has been. This is what I have against you. This is what I commend you for. This is what I call you to, and here's what I promise. Uh, I'll give you one particular example. Revelation 2, beginning at verse 18, is the letter to Thyatira. And there we read, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire, scorching vision, what we might call today x-ray vision, sees right into us and through us as well. The man who has... a eyes like flame of fire, and his feet are like unto burnished brass. I know thy works, and thy love, and faith, and ministry, and steadfastness, and that thy last works are more than the first. Jesus says, I'm keeping an account, I'm watching, and I know that in this particular church, your later works are more than your first works. You're growing, you're improving, you're maturing. But I have this against thee, that thou sufferest the woman Jezebel, who calleth herself a prophetess, and she teaches and seduceth my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time that she should repent, and she willed not to repent of her fornication. 
Behold, I cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of her works. Jesus says, now here's a little particular history of this church. You have this problem here, and you haven't taken care of it. Church discipline's not active among you, and it should be. And I threaten, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he that searcheth the reins and the hearts. And I will give unto each one of you according to your works. There's another reminder. He knows your works, and he will reward you or punish you according to your works. But to you, I say, to the rest that are in Thyatira, as many as have not this teaching of Jezebel, who know not the deep things of Satan, as they are wont to say, I cast upon you none of the burden. Nevertheless, that which ye have, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh, and he that keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with the rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers, as I also have received of my Father. Jesus says, those who are enduring to the end, those who are overcoming, those who are growing, are going to eventually have cultural influence. They're going to rule over the nations. What they say and their principle of life, that will come to dominate. And so there will be reward if we'll take account of where we're going. Now, that was a word to the churches. Okay, so Hebrews says, check your progress. When by nature of the time have you reached the point God would expect you to have reached? You churches, are your later works greater than your first works? Are you growing? Paul goes into, um, Paul gives a rehearsal of um, his uh, spiritual progress and his overall assessment of his life in 2 Timothy 4, probably the last book that he wrote before he was executed. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but also to all them that have loved his appearing. How could Paul say that if he hadn't kept account of where he had been and what he had done and what God had been accomplishing in his life? But Paul is able to say, and don't you have days when you just wish that, uh, that that confidence was yours, that you could say that upon your deathbed, upon the prospect of death, I have fought the good fight, I've kept the course, and I know that the crown of righteousness is laid up for me. Interestingly, combined with that overall assessment of his spiritual progress, Paul gives a detailed rehearsal of the past relevant history um, that he has had something which I think we need to do uh, through the passing of time. Uh, Paul did this at the end of just about every one of his epistles, but since we're here in 2 Timothy, let me just read the rest of the epistle for you. He says, give diligence to come shortly unto me. And then just, it's amazing how much history he packs in here. What has taken place recently? For Demas forsook me, having loved this present world, and went to Thessalonica. Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is useful to me for ministering. But Tychius I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, bring when thou comest, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord will render to him according to his works. Of whom do thou also beware, for he greatly withstood our words. At my first defense no one took my part, but all forsook me. May it not be laid to their account. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, 
that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will save me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul looks at this past history, those who have deserted him, those who have gone other ways in the ministry, the fact that no one stood with him at his first trial, the fact that he was delivered from the lion's mouth, which metaphorically or literally means he was delivered from death in, in some way. He talks about Alexander the coppersmith, who apparently was a great opponent of Paul and did him much harm, he says, and he warns people against him. Paul looks at, you see, the past history and these details, and then he makes his spiritual assessment. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will save me to the great and final day. I think this is what we need to do as time passes, and with the coming of a new year, it's appropriate to do it now. We need to go through a rehearsal of the past, our own individual past, past the past of our church, the past of our culture, that we might understand the times, know what we should do, that we might make corrections in our own spiritual lives and progress, and that we might see where we are going. The Old Testament Jews did this periodically. They stopped to reflect upon God's work in their midst. They'd stop and remember what God has done. They would erect memorials often. They would rehearse the mighty deeds of God, and they would repeat that throughout their generations, and they would repent of their sins. I think the new Israel should practice that pattern of the old Israel, remembering God's mighty works, rehearsing what he has done for us, assessing the time and the nature of our lives, repenting of our sins, and moving on. In fact, the Bible tells us that God is keeping a great inventory book, isn't he? a book in which every one of our deeds and thoughts or words are recorded, a book which he will open on the final day and use it for the assessment of our lives. And if history and our lives are moving toward that great confrontation, if you will, with the inventory assessment book that God has, how much more should we be keeping inventories of our own lives, assessing our own lives and our own progress? In short, I think it's time for a periodic review that we understand our times and understand the nature of this last year so that we can check our own spiritual progress. And uh, I have two things in looking at uh, the course of history over the last year, both outside and inside our church. I have two basic propositions that come to me by way of uh, analysis. Um, First of all, let's just look briefly at the world outside of our church. What, um, what would you say are the key events? What are the, what are the memorable um, events of this past year, 1982? Well, as I thought about it, and uh, you know, that's somewhat subjective. It's also selective because uh, you know, what I pay attention to in the newspaper and watch on the TV may not be what everybody else does. So I'm not claiming to have a God's eye point of view. That this, in God's eyes, is exactly what are the most... Uh, important events, but these, these, these stand out in my mind, and I think they are significant. Uh, where they would be placed overall, I'm not sure, but they are significant. Uh, I think what has taken place in Poland with the Solidarity Union and the crushing of that union is a very ominous sign um, as to what uh, the Soviet Union and its satellites will tolerate when it comes to freedom, free enterprise, and of course religion the assassination, the attempted assassination of the Pope and the possible connection that has with the crushing of the Solidarity Union um, is more than just a, a mystery uh, that intrigues us as we read the papers. It ought to be something that chills us as to the nature of uh, 
human events and what is controlling political forces in the international world. I think of the Mideast and specifically of Beirut and uh, the taking of Beirut by uh, Israel, uh, especially the uh, refugee camps and the slaughter that took place there. It's an amazing irony, isn't it, that the very people um, who have come to the world pleading for uh, tolerance and uh, sympathy and respect because of what they've endured through the Holocaust now are tarred with the very same brush. Uh, it would appear that if nothing else we should learn the lesson that um, this is something which is in human nature. It's not just in, uh, in certain madmen who are Germans or, uh, or Italians, that it is part of human nature that these um, atrocities take place. The Falkland Islands, um, another incident during this last year, um, I think of the threat, the threats, many threats during the elections in El Salvador and the significance of that to the attempt to uh, stifle free elections. Uh, what we have is a continuing pattern then in the world, don't we? Whether it's Poland or the Mideast or the Falkland Islands or El Salvador or wherever you'd like to look, a continuing pattern of one, violence and repression, terrorism, the lack of freedom, the lack of integrity. In our own country, um, uh, just trying to think of some of the major political things that stand out in my mind, I thought through this last year, and I suppose we'd have to mention the resignation of Alexander Haig and the replacement of him by George Shultz, which I think is a significant um, move in the part of our current administration. Also indicates that things, things are not all well in Washington. Uh, obviously, with two parties, things are never going to be completely well because one party wants to replace the other. But it's obvious enough that within one's own administration, those of high command uh, cannot get along with the president, and that worries me. I think of the anti-nuclear rallies, which have received a great deal of attention, perhaps more in the media than they really deserve, although I do think they are significant. But the anti-nuclear rallies, the MX debate that has um, most recently gone on in our country, um, Two matters of the employment stand out in my mind. Uh, the reports that have been coming, now even the secular world is saying what uh, people in the Chalcedon movement have been saying for years now, that uh, uh, the American uh, lust for um, credit, for borrowing, is uh, just out of hand. I and mean, it's just worrying everybody. Gas companies canceling their credit cards. Uh, it's just uh, gotten to be uh, of epidemic proportions. Uh, unemployment also is at a new high. Uh, since uh, uh, World War II, and that, um, of course, does not look good for the administration politically, but uh, apart from the political ramifications, it is terrible for those who are out of work. Just think of the psychological damage that it does, as well as the deprivation that it brings into people's lives. Important um, social events, uh, the arrest of DeLorean, uh, the collapse of his... Um, auto empire and the fact that uh, his collapse comes through um, drug dealing has uh, really troubled the American conscience. I don't think the man himself deserves all that, but uh, culturally we've done a lot of self-analysis uh, because of that. What is it about the American dream that leads somebody to that? Or is it the American dream that led him to that at all? Um, I'm sure all of us who are conservatives in political matters were disappointed at the revelations about John Schmitz this year. We found out that even those who are supposed to be the good guys in politics have clay feet and uh, can be a tremendous social embarrassment because their personal lives don't live up to the integrity that they promote um, 
socially and politically. Of course, the midterm elections would have to be uh, remembered in this uh, particular uh, rehearsal of 1982. The movie E.T., um, I have steadfastly resisted the temptation to go, uh, but I acknowledge it is a cultural force uh, that is among us. Uh, you can't go into the stores at Christmas time without catching that. That has really captured the imaginations of people, and for reasons which are not too hard, I think, to understand. You don't need a PhD to figure that one out. Um, well, 1982. We could go on and on. These sorts of things stand up my mind. Perhaps you could add to my list. Other things that could be mentioned about 1982, a number of deaths, um, names, uh, I suppose most of you will recognize these names. John Belushi died this year, as did Ingrid Bergman, Leonid Brezhnev, John Cheever, David Dubinsky, Henry Fonda died, Leon Jaworski died, Grace Kelly died, King Khalid died, Archibald MacLeish, Leroy Page, Satchel Page, the baseball player, Ann Rand, Lee Strasberg, Bess Truman. Why do I mention these people? Why are they important? They aren't. What's important is that they died. See, death is something that took place in 1982, too. Now, my family is very aware of that. Kathy lost three very close relatives in one year. It's kind of hard for, um, for an individual to take, but apart from uh, dramatic instances of death, whether they be famous people or the number of deaths in your own family, uh, you know, neighbors, friends, people that mean nothing to you, die. And death continues to be a problem. There have been some important divorces this year as well, all the way from uh, John Denver, which is a hard-to-believe one, to um, Edward Kennedy, which I guess everybody is willing to accept. Um, but you see, these are the famous, the rich, the powerful. But divorces have been taking place throughout this year. In our own congregation, we see what that means when a family breaks up. The, the great spiritual, emotional, and social ramifications of that sort of thing. And it's happening all the time. It's happening with greater frequency in our culture. People are dying. People are getting divorced. People are unemployed. And we can go on and on with the long trail of human misery that we see round about us. What is the conclusion I draw from looking at the world round about me in 1982? I conclude that the world needs Christianity as much as it ever has needed it. Far from moving into a post-Christian era, we're moving into an era that all the more needs the Christian faith. Not only to take care of one's personal problems, uh, reconciliation with God, reconciliation with one's neighbor, the ability to live a life with integrity and meaning, but also to deal with our social and political problems. We need uh, a worldview that is going to give meaning to life, that's going to affirm the goodness of creation, it's going to give moral standards by which to live. And Christianity, as I've been preaching the last few weeks, I won't repeat that for you, does that. So I conclude that as I look at 1982 and the events of the world, I'm terribly happy that I'm a Christian, uh, that God has seen fit to give a perspective by his grace by which I can see the world and although hurt because of the suffering of the world, and nevertheless put it in a perspective and believe that God is accomplishing something through it. Moving from outside the church to inside the church, I think we ought to do a short history of 1982 in our congregation as well, in the spirit in which um, this meditation is being presented. Uh, and again, instead of doing a systematic survey of the year, I just sat down and thought to myself, what are 
the things that stand out in my mind as far as developments in our church during this last year. Um, at the beginning of the year, and uh, at least into uh, mid-year, one of the important things that occupied my thoughts and e efforts was the chairman program that we have uh, initiated here, where we try to distribute the work and the ministry of this uh, congregation to the congregation and not, if you will, uh, leave a monopoly within the session where the session does everything. And it's not just that the session doesn't have time to do everything, it's that the Bible wouldn't have the session to do everything. And so when it comes to education and evangelism and serving people and uh, getting out and taking care of the poor, um, any number of ways of uh, service in our congregation, we have been trying to involve more and more people. That was really terrific. In fact, I do remember uh, uh, having an early session meeting, uh, early in the year that is, where um, the people who had come to observe the meeting were quite pleased and, and commended the session that we were so quick in getting on to this chairman's program. The chairman program, as I think about it, is also um, a point of some, although not as much uh, as my encouragement, some discouragement also because uh, three major positions in the chairman program have had to be um, replaced and it's only been in, uh, in place and functioning for six months. Um, we have a new hospitality chairman, a new social chairman, uh, that because of church discipline problems to be sure, um, and we have a new service chairman as well. Uh, we've had to make these changes and, and that's discouraging. Uh, I think the program's a good one and it will survive. Uh, but when we see these changes, one has to stand back and say, well, that has to be taken into account also. Meeting location was a major problem this year, and as the year ends, it's a major problem again. Um, it was said at the time of uh, my installation as your pastor that we're the church on the move uh, because we've been in so many different places, and apparently the Lord's going to keep us on the move. Uh, at least we don't get fat and sassy that way. We don't sit back and say, hey, we've got it made. It'd be nice to have uh, some peace and a central location that we could call our own to make some progress at the same time. But uh, as uh, Jim said earlier, I think we look with excitement to what God is doing through the most recent setback and that this uh, location has been sold and we need to leave. Anyway, 1982 was characterized by the problems of meeting in a mortuary chapel, a chapel which uh, internally was beautiful but externally was not the setting for bringing people. Uh, this year, we've had many people join the church. I don't know numerically, but I think we probably had more people join the church this year than any of our previous years, two other previous years. Um, a large number. In fact, the first uh, Sabbath of the new year, we had three families come into the church, and there was a steady stream um, to mid-year um, with that. We've also had a few people leave the church, and we need to remember that and what it uh, may say to us about them and about us. Um, one particular um, loss, the, um, the Bell family, I think, is worthy of uh, brief commentary. Um, the Bell family had, when they came into this church, a significant doctrinal disagreement with the session, but at the time were very happy to endure that disagreement for the sake of, um, I suppose, the, uh, the net good that the congregation and ministry here represented to them. But as time went on, I'm afraid that little disagreement was like a wedge that pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until a time came right about vacation period when um, it became very evident to them uh, that they were out of accord with the overall spirit of the congregation, or so it seemed to them, and um, therefore um, stopped attending on a regular basis. 
uh, after the session, went to the Bells to speak to them about the situation. It turns out that any number of things that we wouldn't have imagined uh, come out as well. As well, we find out that the doctrinal disagreement that we had, um, uh, sadly, the Bells don't understand what the issue is there. I think there's no other way to put it. They just don't understand what uh, they disagree with. Um, and nor do they understand the importance of that disagreement, or shall I say, the minor position of that disagreement. What does that teach us as a congregation? It teaches us that we need a great deal more mutual interaction, exhortation, a great deal more tolerance, and a great deal more commitment to the Scripture as the final standard of our faith. Because when the Scripture and the Scripture alone is our standard, then these disagreements can be endured in an attitude of tolerance and love where we say, we're going to keep talking about this, we're going to keep working on it until we come to one mind. Our congregation, I think, has done very well because we are so opinionated as a general group, I think, um, we do very well to keep the unity that we have. But the loss of one family uh, hurts us, not just in terms of numbers or even contribution, but hurts us more as the body of Christ and that it indicates that uh, they and we have failed in that regard. Uh, this year we had an emphasis upon the poor, um, some studies done early in the year on that. Um, uh, Kevin wrote on that subject and made some presentations to us. I preached one special sermon on that subject. Uh, the session has been concerned to make sure that medical insurance is uh, ado adequately um, uh, possessed by everybody in our congregation since uh, some major accident or illness that were to come to anybody would not be able to be um, handled by the church uh, this size, and so those sorts of things have occupied our minds this year. I've done more counseling this year than I think I've ever done in a year's time. I, I haven't counted the number of hours yet, but it's a terrific, um, terrific amount, and some of that extremely encouraging. I mean, you really see the grace of God at work and thank Him that uh, the principles He lays down work, some of it extremely discouraging. Um, uh, one particular case in point, uh, uh, one couple that uh, had separated in their marriage and I think were on the, on the verge of uh, reuniting because of my counseling, uh, finally gave in to outside pressures, pressures outside of my counseling room, and, um, and they were not reconciled. As far as I know now, they are not reconciled. Um, so those sorts of things stick in my mind in 1982. I think my new answering device also stands out in my mind. <laughs> I never would have thought that we would resort to that sort of thing, but lo and behold, I am sleeping more and uh, getting more time to myself because we use it. So I'm glad that I had an elder who insisted that I do it, even contrary to our um, desires. Community life, our evening services, uh, began this year, and that's a significant step. Perhaps even more significant is that we've had to cancel them for lack of uh, consistent support from the congregation. And then finally, as I thought, as I was sitting down writing out what strikes me about 1982 in our congregation, obviously the, the marital disruption between Linda and Charlie Bird and the discipline that has come there. As I review 1982, uh, there's a pattern to the preaching that I might uh, point out to you. In fact, I put something on the bulletin board back here for those of you who would like to look at it. Recently, I was asked a question by two members, two very attentive members of our congregation. Um, about um, where are we going in the preaching here? Is there a, is there a program of preaching? And uh, see, that, that took me back so much that because it is so clear and, and uh, so dominating in my own mentality that I thought, can anybody have missed it? Well, I um, went through every um, Sabbath date uh, in our bulletins and made a list of um, what was preached upon. 
and I put it in categories, the Luke series, special series or occasions, and guest preachers, just so I could see how it came out. And um, I feel good that the pattern is there, but I also can see why, because of the uh, special series on the church and also special occasions and vacation time. And one other thing, we went back and forth in Luke for a few weeks as I made up for um, tape library uh, missing sermons. Um, the Luke series is the dominant thing in this year's preaching, but there's also a long series on the church as well as special emphasis upon baptism in the poor. The other um, changes were, I think, uh, more understandable, New Year, Easter, Christmas, those sorts of things. If you're interested in that, more information on the back board. Now we come to the part that perhaps is the most surprising about our service. I'm going to ask that the um, head usher, Richard, pass out for you a little quiz that I put together for you. It's two pages and about uh, 84 questions altogether as a means of reviewing this uh, year in our church. The first part of the quiz The first part of the quiz is the life of the church <coughs> review, <coughs> which I give you in the, in the spirit of the Puritans as a way of measuring your own informed involvement in the congregation. I don't want you to answer these questions publicly or even to write them out and hand them in, but you might want to go home and write them out. And then ask yourself what you think the significance of your answers might be. One, how many times did you attend Bible study? What was the subject matter of the Bible study this year, even if you didn't go? Where and when did the Bible studies meet during this year? You paid enough attention to even know when you would have to arrive and where you would go if you became interested in coming? What changes in format for the Bible study were seen this year? Two significant ones took place. You know what they are. Thank you. What is community life? What did community life include? How often did you attend community life? How often did you miss morning worship services this year and what were the reasons? What film series was sponsored by our congregation? What was the burden of that film series and what did you do about it? In the midst of his series on Luke, the pastor offered a special preaching series on what topic? Who joined the church this year? Who was baptized this year? Who was born this year? You begin to get the point. It's a question of how much are we in tune with what's going on in the kingdom of God in this place? Who graduated this year from any school? Who was it that met regularly with us while he was in school in Los Angeles? You remember? For whom did we offer special prayer regarding health needs as reflected in the communiques alone? And I say here, name at least ten and God's answers. You'd be surprised at how many health needs we've gone through. In this. And I don't mean to say that by writing this that I'm the one who could have answered all these questions, but as I went through the communiques, I was just amazed at how many, at least ten major health or bodily related problems that were taken care of in one way or another. Name special prayer requests during the past year concerning employment, housing, transportation, family relations, deaths in family, or travel. Other things could be mentioned, but those repeated a few times. What were God's answers? What major need did the congregation have? Pray about and receive a temporary answer from the Lord. Now, some of this has been given away already, I realize, but uh, it's still good for review. 
who have been Sunday school teachers during this year. Why do I ask that? Because you can't very well pray for these people if you don't know who they are. What day is ordinarily the pastor's day for counseling? Is that even, do you pay attention to that? What creed was added to our congregational worship during this year? What is the open forum as it was presented in the communique? What was the subject of Doug Cressy's letter in the register? Do we care enough that one of our members is trying to have an impact on our culture? Did you read? Do you know? What was the burden of Bob Pegram's flyers just recently? We just prayed about that two weeks ago. About what subjects did Kevin distribute papers this year? Are you involved enough to have paid attention? I don't ask whether you agree or disagree. I mean, do you even know what it's about? Why did we recently have a day of fasting and prayer? Did you fast and or pray with greater frequency on that day? I mean, are you involved with this congregation? What special topic was discussed by Richard Jones in the evening service? What suggestions did Kevin make for extending aid to the poor and needy? That's important for the next one because what concretely have you actually done since Kevin's article and the pastor's special sermon on the need to help the poor and needy? Is this just entertainment or is this a way of getting involved? What do quick and Catholic mean in the Apostles' Creed? Do we read our bulletins every week? Which programs were recently curtailed or canceled for lack of consistent support? Uh, what, this is a touchy one, but it has to be mentioned. What percentage of your earnings this year were contributed to the ministry of our own congregation? Or are you active in supporting that way? Now, most of the above questions, those that are factual in nature about the congregation, could be answered simply by reading the communique attentively. In addition, this year's communiques would have enabled you to learn a great deal about important topics. It's surprising to me how often things come up in the communique that ought to be of real interest to you and of educational importance. Here's some questions to test that. According to the communiques, who are Steve Hake, Ralph English, and David Moore? I'm not going to tell you. According to the communique, what is the nature of the evolutionary idea? What uh, short essay did we have on that? In the communique, what did Frankie Schaefer maintain about the press media? You remember that? As reported in the communique, what significant judicial decision was made at the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America? As summarized in the communique, what are the principles and elements of worship? Anybody who's really reading the communique, I would hope, would have taken that one and filed it. I mean, I did a lot of work to get that summary in there, and you might use it again someday. According to literature which came with the communique, why are church censures necessary today? And finally, what four issues of socio-political urgency have been reported in the communique for you to do something about? If you don't know the answer to that, then I think I can go on to say whether you did or did not do something about that. On the other side, you'll see your 1982 church education review quiz. This is a different point. The previous quiz was to test the degree of your informed involvement in the congregation. Are you a functioning, living, vibrant member of the body of Christ here in 1982? The next one is measuring your degree of attentive learning from programs supplied by the church. We have an amazing amount of material, even for our curtailed program, that is put out. And if we would all pay attention and learn from it, I think we could make stupendous progress in two or three years' time. The difficulty that most pastors have is they have to go back and go back and go back. Do we have to go back here? I'm 
reminded here, there's a number of passages in the New Testament we can look at, but 2 Peter 1, verse 12, Wherefore I shall be ready always to put you in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and are established in the truth which is with you. And I think it right, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that the putting off of my tabernacle cometh swiftly, even as our Lord Jesus signified unto me. Yes, I will give diligence that at every time ye may be able, after my decease, to call these things to remembrance. Chapter 3, the same book. This is now, beloved, the second epistle that I write unto you, and in both of them I stir up your sincere mind by putting you in remembrance. The apostles expected their hearers to remember what they taught them. So what I did here, I just went through the communiques and I took one question, pretty much at random. I could have taken all of them for a really tough final quiz of 1982, but I took just one, qu one question out of the review questions. Now, you know, if I preach a sermon that goes 30 to 45, sometimes 60 minutes, and then I, I give you five, ten questions for review, I haven't covered everything in the sermon those five or ten questions. And now if I go through here and I just take out of those five or ten each week one question, you see how selective this is. So um, see that for as serious and as, uh, you know, every once in a while you're going to forget some of those details anyway. But that's how I put this together. Real quickly, let's see what you did learn this year. What is significant about the fact that Ezekiel saw a vision of the rebuilt temple on the tenth day of the month in which Rosh Hashanah was celebrated? <coughs> what precisely were the Pharisees interested in, uh, to find out about the kingdom? And what conception of it does this suggest? What is the barometer of one's faith? Can piety be a barrier between men and God? What is meant by the title, Son of Man? How do the two incidents at Jericho have the function of a last-minute review for Luke? According to the parable about investments, what is the nature of this period between the two advents of Christ? What does the Bible mean by God's visitation, and how does it come to a head in the life of Jesus? Name some attitudes toward and practices regarding death which stem from unbelief. Why is it significant that Jesus quoted Psalm 118 in Luke 20's rehearsal of his rejection? For what purpose did God give diversity of gifts in the body of Christ? What is the church in, re in reference to Christ, according to Scripture? What are the distinguishing marks of a biblical church? Is the proper work of the church internal nurture or external impact? What principles govern the biblical worship of God? What is a benediction? What isn't a benediction? What circumstances led to the Westminster Assembly? Does the word church in the New Testament always apply to local congregations? How did Jesus prove that life continues beyond the grave? To what practice did Jesus refer when he accused the scribes of devouring widows' houses? What are the five marks of genuine religion? What does the time of the Gentiles indicate in Luke 21? How did Jesus reply to the paralytic in Luke 5 offend the scribes and Pharisees? How was Jesus a model young person? How extraordinary. How did Jesus call the limited use of mental dis why did Jesus call the limited use of mental discernment hypocritical? What did Judas do which amounted to betraying Jesus? Why do we baptize babies? Where does Jesus now drink the wine of the fulfilled Passover? What is Luke's long list of things that disappointed Jesus about the disciples? What were the four main theological emphases of the Reformation? What indicators does Luke give of the intensity of Christ's prayer in the garden? What basis does Jesus give for the exhortation to live like servants? What historical background was learned concerning the Magi? How is Christianity a fairy tale come true? Not every sermon was included there, but 
it's, it's amazing to me how much ground we've covered, how much we would know if we all would keep these things in mind. And then add to that Sunday school and Bible school, uh, our Bible study questions, and these are very selective. I was running out of room on the page. What good works are performed by the unregenerate according to our Sunday school lessons? If the, um, that should be perseverance of the saints, does not depend upon their free will according to the confession, what does it depend upon? Can we have infallible assurance of our salvation? What, does, uh, what uses does the law of God have today? What does the confession say about praying for those who have sinned unto death? Is the Lord's Day a New Testament requirement? Is it the Christian Sabbath? What is the difference between an oath and a vow according to the confession? Or at least what are we struggling to find out about that? To what do the seven trumpets apply in Revelation 8 to 11? What did the Old Testament prophesy about the coming kingdom of God? Take that home and use it also as a test for whether you are gaining what you could. Are you getting your time and money's worth out of the educational services of our congregation? So the second thing that uh, I say about 1982 is that Christians need the church as much as ever. The world needs Christianity as much as ever, and Christians need the church as much as ever. As we stop to take account of uh, what's happening in our world and the nature of our times, and what's taking place in our lives and congregation and what God would have us to do. I hope that uh, we'll see the improvement that we need to make so we won't be fools, but we'll be wise enough to buy up the opportunities and make 1983 a better and more maturing year than even 1982 would have been. I think I told you before that Ludwig Wittgenstein explained why he couldn't be a Christian. Uh, he once said he couldn't be a Christian because he could not discipline himself to keep in the forefront of his mind the final judgment. He acknowledged, which is amazing for an unregenerate man, he acknowledged that his problem was he could not remember, he could not discipline himself to make a controlling image of his life that he would stand before God and have to answer for everything he said and did. As he saw it, a person who can't do that is not really a Christian. As 1982 has passed and 1983 is coming, I wonder whether we see the nature of the time and see our own lives in terms of the final day of judgment. That's when all of time will be evaluated. Isaac Watts said, Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Before the hills and order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. The busy tribes of flesh and blood, with all their lives and cares, are carried downward by thy flood, and lost in following years. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be thou our guard while troubles last, and our eternal home. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, give us sensitive hearts and discerning minds that we might review our lives, review this past year, see where we have gone, 
our grievous sins that you have turned us away from, those that we need yet to turn away from, that we might see the work of grace and blessing that you have been in our lives and turn in gratitude to you and trust all the more this year, that we might see how time is bearing away all the sons of this earth and all the problems of this day and culture, that we might appreciate all the more the sweetness of your grace as it answers man's deepest needs and longings, that we might see what it is to be members of the body of Christ and how your kingdom needs to continue to advance and to see victories in this world. Lord, give us a sense of time and the issues that are involved Above all, give us a sense of the stability of an eternal and unchanging God who is not only wrathful toward the disobedient, but gracious toward his people, for which we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.